if I would lead singing. I told him, he can preach, but I'm not leading singing. And trust me, you don't want me to lead singing. But I appreciate James, and thank you for standing in at this late hour. We hope and pray that Billy will feel better soon. And uh, thank you, James, and appreciate your spirit, your zeal, your desire to do what you can. We're pre we are certainly appreciative to him and his family. Thank you for being here tonight. And to those of you who may be visiting, we invite you to come back. This is a holiday week, and so we pray that if you're traveling, your travels will be safe and that you'll be back here in the very near future. Hope and pray that everyone has a happy time with family and friends. And so look forward to this coming Thursday and Friday. We're going to be looking tonight at 1 John chapter 3. We continue our series of studies on key chapters of Scripture. And we are coming to the end of our study. Uh, this past week, Jared and I sat down and we went through a number of individuals that we want to talk about in the coming year, some of the great characters of Scripture. And we have tried to identify both males and female. Males and females that are spoken of in a very prominent way in Scripture. And there are some good, some bad, but we can learn from all. And so the coming year, the Lord willing, we hope to explore some of the great characters of Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments. And so I would invite you to make plans to be a part of that study. We'll try to have our list, we'll try to have our list together and put out in the foyer in the very, in the very fu near future so that you can begin a study in that regard. So tonight we look at 1 John chapter 3. I want to begin by talking about the theme of our study tonight. And tonight we're going to be talking about the difference the Lord makes in life. If you're a child of God, I think that you would unequivocally say, God has made a difference in your life. God has made a difference in how you live day to day. If you work on a daily basis, I would imagine that He has made you a better employee. If you are someone in a position of authority, He has made you a better boss, a better employer. If you're a husband or a wife, then I think it would only stand to reason that you are a better husband, a better wife, because of your relationship to God. The same could be said if you're a parent. You're a better mother, a better father, because of the relationship that has been forged through your obedience to the gospel of Christ. So tonight we talk about the difference the Lord can make in life. In this chapter tonight, there are three basic things that I want to share with you. Number one, I want to talk about our relationship to the Savior. And so in 1 John chapter 3, John begins by emphasizing the relationship that we have with the Lord. And that relationship is something that we ought to be grateful for. So number one, he talks about how we are a part of the family of God. Listen to what John said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God or the sons of God. Throughout the Scriptures, there are expressions of God's love. I don't know anyone that doesn't mind somebody saying to them, 
how much they love them. If you're married, I can only imagine, I would, I would surmise, that you express your love to your husband or your wife on a daily basis. That you let them know how much you appreciate them. There's something to be said about expressing our love for another person, another member in the human family. But the Bible tells us that God loves us. That's His very nature. You remember in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John said in a very emphatic way, God is love. And because God is love, He has expressed His love for us. I was thinking today about our lesson tonight, and one of the things that I began to just turn over in my mind, the numerous times in both the Old and New Testaments that the Bible affirms God's love for us. I'd encourage you over the next few days to sift through the Scriptures and just take note of how often the Bible talks about God's love for you individually. Now, there are people in our world today, for whatever reason, they have concluded, number one, that no one loves them. And they feel alone and isolated and unloved by others in the human family. Some, sadly, have the idea that they're not worthy of God's love. Listen, we'll never be worthy of the love of God. But there is a fact that is central to Scripture, and that is that God loves us. And that God's love for us is expressed time and time again. In 1 John chapter 4, you remember John said, Here in His love, not that we love God, but listen to what he said, but that He loved us. Therein lies one of the foundational truths about the God that we serve. That He loves us, and listen, because He loves us, He wants us to be a part of His family. If there's anything that we ought to take away from our lesson tonight, is that God loves us and God wants us to be a part of His spiritual family, the church. In John chapter 3, verse 16, a passage that probably all of us have known since we were very young in life. Jesus said, For God so loved the world, the scope of God's love, it embraces the entirety of the human family. And so God has loved us, and because of that love, He sent His Son to die for our sins. And so there are expressions of God's love, but then what about the evidence of God's love? Is there conclusive evidence in Scripture that God loves us? Well, again, the answer would be absolutely. Well, how do we know that? We know it by looking back some 2,000 years ago to the events that occurred just outside the walls of Jerusalem, to Calvary, to Golgotha. As the sacred writer said, the place of a skull. Jesus was lifted up between two thieves. And as Jesus was lifted up, God said, in effect, to the human family, I love you. My love for you is such that I want you to be saved. And what was it Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4? That God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
And so John is writing to Christians in the first century. And he said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, the sons of God. We are a part of the household of God, the family of God. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we are a part of a divine family. But then there's a second thought. First, John addresses, our, addresses the fact that we are the family of God, and then he talks about our future with God. John simply talks about, in verses 1 and 2, number one, the promise of the Lord's coming. So listen to what he said beginning in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, you know, the Lord ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago. He is seated upon a spiritual throne, the coronation of Christ. Jesus sits upon David's throne, and from the right hand of God, He wells all authority in heaven and on earth. The same Jesus that ascended to heaven, according to Paul, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And as John said, when the Lord is revealed, we shall see Him as He is. Let that sink in for a minute. There is coming a day when we will see the Lord face to face. We will, as John said, see Him as He is. It's hard to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? To know that one day we will be in the presence of King Jesus. Now the Bible talks about how we're going to be ushered before the throne of God and give an account of the deeds done in the body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. But you think about how much time you have spent reading and studying about the life of Jesus. And you have sifted through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read time and again about the life and ministry of Christ. And you have been impressed by the love of Christ and His willingness to die for your sins. And the relationship that you have with Christ and because of that relationship, you have a relationship with the Father. But one day, John said, we're going to be in the very presence of the Lord. And so there is the promise of His coming, but then secondly, there is the promise at His coming. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, look again at verse 2. Beloved, now we're the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The Bible tells us that when the Lord returns, that He will transform our lowly body like unto His glorious body. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Do you remember when Paul talked about the resurrection of Christ and the validation of that resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
He said that when Jesus comes again, that we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. He said the dead will be raised and will be changed. And this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal body will be clothed in immortality. And death will be swallowed up in victory. So to understand that there's coming a day, and listen, it might be the case that our body lies in the heart of the earth for thousands of years. But that same body that was placed in the heart of the earth one day by the power of God will be raised from the dead. And the Bible says that when we are raised from the dead, we will go home to be with God in a glorified body. And so it is a blessing to be a part of the family of God. And to know that as a part of the family of God, we have a future with God. Think about your future. I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day. And we were talking about some things relating to what we wanted to do with the duration of our lives. And he said, I would recommend sitting down and just putting on paper what you want to do the next 10 or 15 years of your life. It might be that you have mapped out the next 10, 20, 30 years that you have before you. I know this much. More water is behind me than is before me. And so what I want to do is use the time that I have wisely. So we talk about our future. You might have great plans. You've got plans to go to college. Maybe you've already identified where you plan to study one day. You plan to marry someone and have a family, and all of those are tremendous goals. It's a great future. But there's something more than just our future here on planet Earth. And that is our future beyond this realm of existence. And so, while you make plans for here and now, let me encourage you to make plans for the future. Because one day, you want to be with God, and you want to be with the people of God, don't you? You want to be with people that you've known and loved and shared time and experiences with in life. Now, there's a second thing I want, I want us to look at in our study. First, we talk about our relationship to the Savior, Secondly, John talks about our relationship to sin. One of the great themes in the book of John has to do with our confidence or assurance in Christ. And so there are some things that we have to understand in relation to how we live and how we function as members of the body of Christ. And so what about our relationship to sin? Well, number one, there must be the relinquishment of our will. Now, I want you to look at something. Pick up, for example, in verse 4. In verse 4, John said, Whoever commits sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now, I said that when we talk about our relationship to sin, there is the relinquishing of our will. Number one, we have to be willing to die to self. So look at that word sin. S-I-N. 
The middle letter in that word is what? I. Sometimes, sadly, we fail to come to Christ or we don't choose to live for Christ because we want our own way. We want to be the master of our ship, don't we? We want to be in absolute control of our life. And so there is the relinquishing of our will, the subjugation of our will to the Father's will. So you think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. If any man will come after me, listen to this, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So in order for me to become a child of God, Jesus said the prerequisite is, I've got to be willing to die to self. Do we have an example of someone who subjugated his will for a higher purpose? Can you think of anybody? What about Jesus? Didn't Jesus subjugate or submit to the will of the Father? Do you remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. When Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work, listen to this, that you have given me to do. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and He is wrestling with the weight of the cross, He said three times, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. And so, in order to become a child of God, I have to be willing, number one, to die to self. Then secondly, I must be willing to die to sin. That is to the love and the practice of sin. So now listen, listen if you would to what John says. Those who commit sin, he said they commit lawlessness because sin is lawlessness or iniquity. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now look at verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him. He cannot sin. Why? Because he's been born of God. Now I would grant that the instrument through which we come to understand the truth of God and the will of God is the seed of the kingdom, the Word of God, as Jesus said in Luke 8, 14. But I want you to think about this for a minute. When we obeyed the gospel of Christ, when you were baptized into Christ, it may be the case that you didn't necessarily understand this. That you didn't make the tie going all the way back to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. When God said to Abraham, in you, in your family, will all nations of the earth be blessed. God promised to bless the world both Jews and Gentiles, 
through the lineage of Abraham, right? The Christ came through that seed line, didn't he? So when we obey the gospel of Christ, for example, in Galatians chapter 3, when Paul said, you're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, listen to him, he said, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So as an heir of the promise made to Abraham, as a part of that spiritual seed line, I'm not a part of the physical seed line of Abraham. I'm not of Jewish descent. Spiritually speaking, however, I am a descendant, spiritual descendant of Abraham, as are you if you've obeyed the gospel. And so what does that signify? It says that I am a changed person. There's something different about my life. Well, what is it that governs or controls my mode of thinking? Wouldn't it be the seed of the kingdom, the Word of God? Isn't it God's Word that regulates my behavior, your behavior? Didn't Paul say, for example, in Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So we're taking the Word of God and we're storing that Word up in our mind. Why? So that we might walk in the footsteps of Christ. So that we might live in accordance with the will of Almighty God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God. Now, look at that little word, behave. Paul's saying, look, I have written for this purpose. So that you might know how to behave or conduct yourself in God's house. We're part of God's family, aren't we? And well, just think about your home. If you have children, are there, rule, are there rules and regulations in your home? Are there guidelines that your children have to abide by? Well, the answer would be yes. By the same token, in God's house, are there rules and regulations that I am to abide by? Well, again, the answer would be yes. So, I die to the love and the practice of sin. Paul would say this in Galatians chapter 6, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified unto me and I unto the world. In Romans chapter 6, Paul makes the case that we have died to the love and the practice of sin when we obeyed the gospel. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His response, God forbid. How shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? Why, Paul? Because we've been baptized into the death of Jesus. A death has taken place and we have been raised to walk, as Paul would say, in newness of life. So the new birth brings about a new beginning, affording us new blessings. Where are those blessings? They're in Christ Jesus, aren't they? So Paul is saying, look, or rather John's saying, as a child of God, you are no longer a practitioner of unrighteousness. But your goal, your desire, your ideal is to be a practitioner of righteousness. Can we practice right living, righteousness? Can we honor the will of God and walk in the commands of God? Well, the answer would be yes. Yes. 
So you think about our relationship to sin. And Paul is talking about we must be willing to relinquish our will. And then there is a resolve. The resolve that I make when I become a child of God, number one is I'm going to abide in Christ. I'm not only going to abide in Christ, but I'm going to abide in the Word of Christ. So with that in mind, just drop down if you would and look at verse, well, look, at, look again at verse 6. John said, whoever abides in Him, that's in Christ, does not sin. Well, why? Because you're not in the sinning business anymore. You're no longer living for the devil. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 10, John identifies two families. On the one hand, you have the children of God. On the other hand, you have the children of the devil. So we're either in one or the other. We're in one family or we're in another family. Either we are God's children or we are the devil's children. That's what John's saying. So we must abide in Christ. Sadly, there are a lot of folks in our world today that want to somehow separate Jesus from His Word. There are a lot of folks today that want to separate Christ from the church. Christ and the church were God's answer to sin. The church was and is God's redemptive plan. Why? Because the saved are in the church. You can't be among the saved outside the body of Christ. No more than you can be saved outside of Jesus Christ. Paul said, speaking of Christ, He is the Savior of the body. The body being the church. So we abide in Christ and we abide in the Word of Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John 8 verse 31. Then are you my disciples indeed. Well, how so? Jesus said, if you abide in my word. If we're willing to abide in the doctrine of Christ, and by the way, in 2 John, John talks about the importance of abiding in the doctrine of Christ. And he said that if we fail to abide in the doctrine of Christ, our relationship with the Father and the Son are suffered. But in 1 John 1, 7, he said, if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of His Son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So we're abiding in Christ and we're abiding in the Word of Christ. Look, if you would, at the very last verse in this chapter. Look at verse 24. John said, He who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now, in the first century, the gospel message was in men. You had inspired men. Today, the gospel resides where? It's in this book that we call the Bible. Is it possible for me to take the Word of God and to look at my life in light of God's Holy Word? Well, the answer would be yes. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, you remember the words of the Apostle Paul? He said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we're the children of God. All he's saying is that I can take this book that we call the Bible and the Holy Spirit was the revealing cause of salvation. In other words, we have the revealed will of God through revelation. God has made known His will unto us. And so I can take the Scriptures and I can look at what the Bible says in light of how I'm living. And if my life measures up to this standard, then what's the conclusion? I'm a child of God. I mean, there could be a checklist that we might go through. Have I obeyed the gospel? Am I living as God has directed in His Word? Either I am or I'm not. One or the other. But if we are in compliance with the will of God, can we not say that we're children of God, that we're heaven bound? Well, the answer would be yes. So the message of the Spirit affords us a sense of confidence in Christ. There's a third thing, very quickly. I know our time's almost gone this morning. I ran over, didn't mean to, but just looking at the time, I know it's getting away. But note, if you would, in the third place, our relationship to the saints. There is the command set forth by the Lord to love. And as you look at 1 John chapter 3, and really in the book of, well, in the book of John, the book of 1 John, it is a treatise on love in many respects. The love that God has for us, the love of Christ, and the love that we're to have for one another. So what about the command to love? I think it's interesting that John sets before us the great pattern of love. Look, if you would, at verse 16. Now, John's going to talk about the importance of learning to love one another. But there is a pattern of love that we're to emulate or imitate. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, all right? How do we know love? How do we know something about love and agape love or sacrificial, self-giving love? We look to Christ, don't we? We look to God. So here it is. By this we know love. Why? Because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So John's saying here, number one, there is this perfect pattern of love. If you want to know something about a picture of love, then look at deity. Look at what the Lord has done for you individually. Sometimes we talk about Scripture and we talk about it theoretically, and we fail to make application to our own lives. And so what John is saying is, if you want to know something about love and how to love other people, then look back to the cross. When Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth, hanging upon a cross, did Jesus not say to those that had put Him to death or were in the process of putting Him to death, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Sure. So there is sacrificial love. And as God's children, we have a pattern for loving one another. And not just a pattern, but what about the practice of love? So with that in mind, back up with me very quickly. And note if you would in verse 11. 
This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain, of course, taking the life of his brother Abel. And as a result of that, indicted as a murderer. But in verse 11, John said from the very beginning, the lesson that had been, that was to have been imprinted on the hearts and minds of people was, you need to love one another. So with regard to practicing that love, well, Cain didn't love his brother like he should have. But John said, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Before we obeyed the gospel, we were said to be dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. But now we passed from death to life. And as a result of that, we live differently. Why? Because the Lord has made a, a difference in our life. In verse 15, he said, He who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16 again, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In verse 17, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, shuts up his heart from him. He asks the question, How does the love of God abide in him? So, how then do we show our love for one another? Well, we render aid, don't we? We are benevolent, compassionate, kind. Isn't that what Jesus taught during His earthly life? Didn't He teach us to serve one another? Was that not one of the great lessons that He tried to teach the apostles? That greatness in the kingdom of God revolved around what? Servanthood. Learning to serve others. And so there is the practice of love. And think about this. What a powerful statement loving one another says to the world. We're supposed to be different, aren't we? In the world, what do you have? You have hatred and envy and jealousy and division. Well, that's in the world. It's not supposed to be in the family of God. And John is writing to Christians in the first century and he's saying, listen, when we demonstrate genuine love for one another, it makes a statement. It lets the world know something about our relationship to the Lord. Now in John chapter 13, you remember Jesus said, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, how so? As I've loved you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if what? If you have love one for another. So how do we... How do we demonstrate that love? Well, we render aid to other people. We not only express our love for one another, but we show our love to one another. Listen to what John said in verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So the idea is that we demonstrate our love for one another just as Jesus demonstrated His love for us on Calvary. There's a second thing I want to share very quickly, our confidence in the Lord. God wants us to be confident. He wants us to feel assured in our relationship to Him. So what about our assurance 
in Christ Jesus. Well, look at verse 19. By this we know that we are the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. And so, as a child of God, if my life corresponds to the will of God or to the truth of God, can I have confidence in my relationship to the Lord? Sure I can. Matter of fact, back up and look at 1 John chapter 2 very quickly. In verse 28, John said, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be, ash- and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Look at the emphasis here. Abide in Christ, so that when the Lord comes, what? We have confidence. God wants us to be confident in our relationship with Him. He doesn't want us wondering and wavering in our faith and questioning and this hope so, think so, maybe so attitude, but rather the Bible says there are certain promises made by God. And as a child of God, we have the right, the privilege of laying hold to those promises, don't we? One of the blessings of our assurance in Christ is that we have the privilege of going before the throne of God, don't we? Remember in 1 John 5, verse 14, when John said, This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, listen to what he said, He hears us. You as a child of God have the privilege of approaching the holy God that is in heaven. And the Bible says that His ears are open to our prayers. So we can stand assured that when we go before His throne, God is listening. And God is responding to our prayers. Time's gone. I've gone over time again. Didn't plan it. But I appreciate your patience and your kindness, your attentiveness tonight. The Lord Jesus can make a difference in our life. And for many of us, the Lord has made a difference, hasn't He? Really, the Lord is what has made our life rich. Can you imagine how barren your life would be without Christ? How futile? And yet in Christ we have all these great riches. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to become a child of God, to understand that God sent His Son to die for your sins, that God wants you to be a part of His special family. If you'll obey the gospel, if you'll do what they did in the first century, You can purify your heart through obeying the truth. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into Christ. God will put you in the church. And then the exhortation is to be faithful unto death. And the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and your life's not what it ought to be, and because your life's not what it ought to be, you fail to have the confidence that you ought to have we would be privileged and honored to pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing.